Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Russia, Russia, Russia. Yes, Russia once again becomes a major issue in American presidential politics. Donald Trump compares his criminal trials to the fate of the Russian dissidents Alexei Navalny, who died in a Russian prison last week. Nikki Haley criticizes Donald Trump for the comparison and for being weak on Russia. And Joe Biden calls Vladimir Putin a crazy SOB and also attacks Trump for being soft on the Kremlin. How will all of this affect the campaign for president, not to mention American foreign policy? Welcome, I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal Opinion Page, here with Kim Strassel and Kate Batchelder-Odell. Well, here we go again. 2016, Russia played an outsized role in the presidential campaign as the Hillary Clinton campaign sought to tar Trump as a tool of Vladimir Putin and later turned this into a two-year Russia collusion probe that turned out to have been largely concocted by Clinton associates. Well, now the issues are more concrete given the stakes on aid to Ukraine and Trump's opposition to it, which is influencing Republicans in Congress. But Trump, as he always does, contributed to it with some of his comments about Putin. And let's listen to him on Fox News Town Hall compare himself to Alexei Navalny. It is a form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. Well, Kate, that elaborates on a true social post that Trump made where he made more direct comparison to his treatment by Democrats to Navalny's treatment. Well, Paul, I think our pages have been pretty skeptical of the indictments against Trump on the substance, for instance, of the Alvin Bragg indictment and just the prudential wisdom of bringing an indictment during a presidential election year. That said, Navalny was 47 years old and in a gulag above the Arctic Circle and was essentially murdered by Vladimir Putin. I think you can see the differences between the treatment there. So I do think this is a low point for Trump to compare himself to Navalny, who, by the way, willingly returned to Russia in 2021, even when he was safe in Germany. It's really a phenomenon of the left to say America is a terrible country that is no different from communist societies like China or Vladimir Putin's Russia. But now you have that being a central strain of Donald Trump's pitch. Yeah, let's listen to Joe Biden respond to that at a fundraiser where he riffed on Putin and Russia. After Putin's most fierce opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, died in a Russian prison last week, the former president, Trump, and other Republicans refused to hold Putin accountable for his death. Instead, Trump said Navalny's death made him realize how bad America is. He said, and I quote, we are a nation in decline a failing nation, end of quote. Why does Trump always blame America? Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Why can't Trump just say that? That may not have been at a fundraiser, actually. I can't remember where it was. But nonetheless, you heard the president try to make an issue of uh, Trump's comments on Navalny. And again, it looks to me like Biden is going to try to make the foreign policy and Trump and Russia an issue again, Kim. you think that's what he is up to here? 
Absolutely. Um, just think about it. He doesn't have much good to say on the domestic front. Bidenomics is not turning out to be the wonderful way of getting reelected that Biden had hoped so. There are a lot of questions about his handling of foreign policy right now as the world sort of leaks into greater global disorder. So this is his opportunity to pound on the other guy and say, I am a stronger leader than Donald Trump will ever be. And it's really a pity that Donald Trump is giving him the opportunity to do this. He's doing it, I would argue, with regards to his statements here. Also, his dismissal and opposition to Ukraine funding, because we can all talk and a lot of Americans understand that we are in some of the situations we are in now because Biden has effectively abandoned effective deterrence. You can argue that Putin is in Ukraine right now because he watched that Afghanistan withdrawal and sensed a president who was weak. But somehow, amazingly, Donald Trump is actually allowing Joe Biden to get to his right on foreign policy and look like the stronger leader, mostly because of his failure to condemn Putin. And that is the strongest and most legitimate hit on him, is that this statement seemed very much as a way to belatedly address Navalny without specifically condemning Putin as the architect of that death. Can I share Kim's puzzlement here with uh, Trump? I guess I shouldn't be puzzled because he will say many things that are puzzling, (laughs) often does. But the point is, politically, I don't think it helps him, Trump, at all to do that. And politically, it would have cost him nothing to say, you know, it's an outrage that Navalny was killed and to point out that Putin is a bad actor. And he still could say, look, I'm in a better position to deal with I'm tougher than Biden and so on and so forth. Instead, in this case, and often he repairs to that personal comparison. See, I'm just like so on and brings it back to his own personal circumstances. And rather than thinking in bigger terms about how he can make people confident in his returning to the job of commander in chief, as opposed to making them doubt, geez, I wonder if he really is going to abandon Ukraine and try to essentially uh, cut some kind of, well, to appease uh, Vladimir Putin. Well, if I could just add to Kim and rehearse the ways in which Joe Biden is manifestly weak on this point, and it's so odd that Trump is not taking political advantage of it. I mean, Joe Biden was vice president in 2014 when Putin swallowed Crimea and the Obama administration basically let it happen. I think that certainly contributed to Putin's willingness to make a much larger play Now, you also have Biden, who has been so nervous about Putin and how he might respond based on what weapons we give them. We've been slow to give them Patriot missiles, slow to give them fighter aircraft and long-range weapons. And then even when Biden is doing this tough guy talk about Putin, that he's an SOB, he said in the next sentence that climate change is our real existential threat. So this is a pretty target-rich environment for any Republican who wants to make a strong case. And even Trump gave joblins to the Ukrainians when he was in office. But he's completely walked away from that record and now goes with these vague promises that he's going to end the war in 24 hours. So again, I think just to reinforce Kim's point, it's so regrettable that Republicans are basically allowing Democrats to look like they are stronger and more serious about defending America and the world's problems. Another illustration, Trump opposed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from supplying natural gas from Russia to Western Europe. Biden, when he took office, withdrew that opposition at the uh, request of Angela Merkel, then the chancellor of Germany. That decision looks terrible now, 
But again, that was a while ago before the Ukrainian invasion. So what it does is people forget about that. And instead, we'll be focusing on the aid to Ukraine. But it's this capacity, Kim, to make all politics personal with Trump. I think that is one of his weaknesses. And in this campaign, he is putting himself front and center as a martyr candidate, the sacrifice for you. They're not attacking me. They're attacking you, he says to his voters. And that lets him into some of these cul-de-sacs. Yeah, I would add one more thing, by the way, to Biden. Remember, too, when Russia was engaged in aggressive cyber attacks against his country. And the president essentially said, here are the areas you're not allowed to do that anymore, thereby essentially greenlighting, I guess, Russia to go after other areas. It was not a strong showing. But you're right, Donald Trump, and this is remarkable. If you think about what he might have done in this environment, how hard would it have been to condemn Putin, a guy that nobody likes, everyone understands is a strong one, everyone understands his brutally broken international standards and norms. And by the way, you can do that if you really care that much without also climbing on board the Ukraine funding issue, if that is his issue, Donald Trump's in the end, but also to praise Navalny and talk about the problems of uh, politicized politics. Now, that might resonate with some people, but of course, to do that, you'd actually have to come up with a pretty strong statement and instead of talking off the cuff, which Donald Trump does. And so again, odd situation where there is so much to criticize about this president and his handling of not just Putin, but other foreign actors, and nobody's calling him on it. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll have more on Russia's intrusion into American politics when we come back. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo here with Kate O'Dell and Kim Strassel talking about the Russia issue in American politics, which has flared up this week again and looks set to maybe run the gamut all the way through to <laughs> November and beyond. The other candidate in the Republican race, Nikki Haley, was also critical of Donald Trump this week on Russia and Ukraine as she tries to suggest that Trump and Biden both are projecting weakness to the world. Let's listen to Nikki Haley. You don't win a general election sitting in a courtroom. You don't win a general election where you're taking the side of Putin over our allies who stood next to us at 9-11. You don't win an election by mocking military members. You don't win an election by refusing to debate. You don't win an election by calling people names. That's not going to work. You win an election by touching hands, answering questions, and guess what? Making it about the American people and not about yourself. It is the problem Donald Trump has. It's the problem Joe Biden has. It's the reason over 70% of Americans don't want Trump or Biden. Well, Nikki Haley making the case against Donald Trump and Joe Biden as the South Carolina primary approaches on Saturday. She's trailing in the polls by a fairly substantial amount right now. But she also is really making a much more forceful, critical case against President Trump, including on foreign policy. Kate, how effective do you think her position has been? Of course, it includes criticism of Trump, his 
opposition to sending military weapons to Ukraine. Well, I think her ability to articulate the increasingly coordinated threat from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea and the way that these powers are working together to undermine the U.S., I think that has been a huge reason for her staying power above other candidates in the race, including Ron DeSantis. So I think that has definitely been something that the public has been willing to listen to and think that she may offer something that the other candidates don't. However, I do think she's right about Trump. Obviously, he's absorbed with his own problems. He's a distraction from what America needs to focus on. But then the pitch sort of stops there. And she still, even at this late hour, hasn't really laid out a compelling policy agenda of what she wants to do about these problems that she's correctly identified. So at this point, probably a little late for that, but I still would like to see her start to drive a debate on what kind of military do we need to have to meet these threats? What kind of economic revival do we need to do to be more competitive around the world, which is an element of national power? Um, She hasn't been as detailed or substantive on those issues as I might like. What has she said about actual defense spending? Has she said we need more? I think she has. She just hasn't delineated how much and what. Well, Paul, when she visited us at the Journal in December, we asked her if we needed to spend more on our national defense, something closer to maybe 6% of GDP, which is what we were spending during the Cold War. We're spending more like 3% of GDP now. And she said, I don't know. She said, I need to look at it. And she wants to make sure that we're spending defense money wisely. But I think anybody who looks at U.S. forces would think that we're not prepared to deal with two major power threats at one time. And you've had other candidates who have been more out in front on this. Mike Pence, I think, said 4.5 percent of GDP. And so she hasn't really looked under the hood there and made her own agenda on it. Hey, I'd settle for four at this stage. (laughs) You know, know, six would be tough to get to, but four, even that would make a big difference. And ultimately, over time, depending on how these threats from China, Russia, Iran, and so on evolve, we might have to go further than that. You know, I'd take force in a heartbeat too, but I think part of what candidates want to do is lay out a net assessment of our challenges and put down a marker. And I think 6% of GDP is a marker of close to where we need to be to meet the threats that we face. What you need, though, is also something tangible. When you lay out a number like that, it's fine, but it is something of an abstraction. But if you can link it to certain kinds of things, we need certain kind of weapon system. We need a 400-ship Navy or 350-ship Navy. We're now at 280-some. You can start to make it more tangible. I mean, JFK in 1960... It was the missile gap against uh, Nixon. Turned out that missile gap was probably mythical, but he used it to great effect to show strength on foreign policy. You have George H.W. Bush in 1988 use MX missile system and other things against Michael Dukakis. And Ronald Reagan in 1976 used the Panama Canal Treaty uh, against uh, Gerald Ford. So, you know, I might have got that wrong. I can't remember if it was 76 or 80, but it was back in the 70s. He used that to great effect to help, I think it was 76, in the Republican nomination fight. There isn't anything in particular that Haley has proposed that has that kind of tangible thing that voters can remember. Can I add, too, that this is an opportunity if she were to do that? not only to get specific on this, but to present to voters a more comprehensive worldview about government and America's standing, what we need to do, because this is an opportunity, for instance, to link in the threat from China. I mean, we've had politicians the past few years running around saying, oh my gosh, we're under such threat from China. What do we do? Do we block their goods from coming into the country? Do we say they can't buy land here? Do we impose tariffs on their products? You know, this is an opportunity 
opportunity to talk instead about the need for forceful deterrent and, and, a, and a revitalized American military. It's also a way, by the way, too, to talk about wayward government spending and to talk about how people have to make choices, guns, butter, or defense, as it were, and tap into people's unease and concern about the amount of pork that is just flowing out of Washington day after day. All right, we'll take one more break and when we come back, we'll talk more about Russia and the United States politics and aid to Ukraine and where that stands, as well as an odd story about an FBI informant who's now been indicted when we come back. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Kim Strassel and Kate O'Dell. And we're talking about Russia's influence in American politics and how it might play out in the campaign. Kim, tell us about this odd story that an FBI informant, longtime FBI informant, was indicted by the special counsel David Weiss last week for, I guess, lying to the FBI about what he was telling them about Hunter Biden spreading disinformation, allegedly, about uh, Hunter Biden. This is the FBI informant who had sometimes been mentioned by Republicans for those allegations about Hunter. What's the background here? So the background here is that years ago, this informant, who considered a confidential human source, we now know he's a dual citizen, by the way, of Israel and the U.S. We don't know a great deal about him beyond that, though. But this confidential human informant told the FBI years ago that he had information taken from sources within Ukraine. In particular, he was making references to the head of Burisma, the Ukrainian energy firm, claiming that there was some deal in which Burisma or people connected to it had agreed to pay Joe Biden and Hunter Biden $5 million apiece. And this was meant to be, or we were thought to have been in return for Joe Biden intervening to get Ukrainian prosecutors off Burisma's back. Now, of course, This all goes back to some of those allegations that were made back during the Trump initial impeachment and and claims that Biden's efforts and works on Ukraine, while he claimed they were in the pursuit of getting rid of public corruption in Ukraine, that they actually benefited a company that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. Republicans did jump on this and had been leaked to them that this memo existed explaining about these payments. They managed to force the FBI to give it to them. They repeated what they claim the FBI told them, which was this was a trusted confidential human source that had made these allegations. A lot of the press is now saying, oh, look, the Republicans have such egg on their face because Weiss has indicted this guy and he's clearly a liar. I certainly agree that it's always wise to treat very carefully things that human sources and the FBI 
FBI are telling you these days. But I do think this puts attention on the FBI, and it's what to me is a, a growing string of confidential human informants that seem to have some real problems that the FBI has relied on in the past by their own acknowledgement. Well, as I understand it, the FBI had actually attested to the accuracy of some of the information from this FBI informant. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And this is why Republicans felt confident bringing this allegation forward because they were initially told they couldn't have this information because this human informant was so important to the FBI and indeed had been such an asset to them that they did not want to risk his outing. And even if his name was redacted from this report, the fear that somehow people would put the pieces together. So that's what Republicans were told. Now the FBI and David Weiss turns around and says, this guy is a snake. And we, we keep hearing more, like not only was his information unreliable, but now they're suggesting he might have ties to Russian intelligence, etc. So I think there's still a lot more to hear about this. All right, let's turn before we go to the question of military aid to Ukraine. The House and the Senate are out this week. Come back next week where they'll have to deal with the budget issues so the government doesn't shut down. But then the issue of Ukraine aid is becoming more urgent. And that was made clear in the Munich Security Conference over the weekend, where American delegation, which always goes there, heard from the Europeans and from Zelensky as well about the urgent need for Ukraine to get more ammunition to resist Russian advances. J.D. Vance, senator from Ohio, was at the conference, but didn't bother to meet with Zelensky or listen to him, or for that matter, to some of the private European meetings. Asked about it, Vance said he didn't think he would learn anything. So I think uh, you have a man who's running for vice president on the Trump ticket by making the case for Trump's opposition to Ukraine aid. Where does this stand, uh, Kate? Is this, so we're still in limbo here. We don't know how this is going to play out in the House, do we? We don't. I mean, it is ironic, I think, to go all the way to Munich and not even attend the meetings. If you have such a strong case against USAID, why not take it directly to power? Um, speak true to them. But that's not what happened. We don't have a path forward in the House just yet, but I remain somewhat cautiously optimistic because the underlying votes are there for Ukraine aid. And there are a couple different ways it could go. You had some lawmakers roll out a kind of skinny Ukraine bill that tries to take some of the financial aid for Ukraine out and focus more on weapons and ammunition. And some center-right members in the House conference ginned that up, Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. And I think when your own members are clamoring for a vote on something, it changes the politics a little bit for Speaker Mike Johnson than just, oh, the Senate bill was sent over to us. So I think that there is a path forward. And again, if he doesn't take up a skinny bill or if he ignores the Senate bill, I think eventually the dam will break on a discharge petition that allows the 218 signatures to move a bill around Johnson's objections. So I don't think it can be avoided for much longer in any case. And so I think that gives Johnson a reason to find a way forward on his own um, before having it decided for him. One of the things I think they have to be concerned about, and we'll end on this point, is the, the Republicans, that is, is if the military aid to Ukraine collapses and there's none going forward. I think it's fair to say that Ukraine is going to have a very difficult time maintaining its position and a rout of its forces or significant retreat can't be ruled out at all. It may even be likely between now and the election. And if that happens, I think there's considerable peril for the Republicans. There'll be a fight over who's to blame, Biden, the Republicans, who lost Ukraine if it comes to that. But I think the Republicans will not be able to escape considerable blame for that. And that's, of course, jeopardizing a long-standing Republican strength 
which is, in fact, strength on foreign policy and opposition, at least since the Reagan years, to rogue states on the march. All right. Thank you, Kate. And thank you, Kim. Thank you all for listening. We're here every day on Potomac Watch, and we sure appreciate your listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.